Welcome to the Testing Habits Podcast. This is Edward Denoyo. Uh, today I'll be speaking with Per Eric Strandberg, who is a researcher at Vestemo and um, Mellardalen University. Per is an engineer and mathematician, and he has extensive experience in software testing and embedded systems. We will talk a little bit about his research work, but many other things, as you will hear in the conversation. I love talking with Per, and I hope you enjoy the, um, the ground we cover. Uh, I'm so excited to, to get to talk with you, Per. Um, um, it's, and nice. I, it's nice. I have a bunch of questions. Talk. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that I have in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, can you tell me more about yourself? Uh, what do yeah, you sure. do? Um, so, two questions. <laughs> yeah. More about myself. So, I'm uh, 40 plus. I live here in Westeros. Two kids, wife, uh, and um, what I do, I, I work with uh, research in software testing mm. at a company called uh, Westermo Network Technologies, AB, mm. Westermo. Um, I've been at Westermo since 2011, and uh, the research is, of course, also under the umbrella of Maladolan University, MDH. So I'm supervised by people here at Maladolan. So I have this double role, if you like, or I'm in, in both worlds, both in the academic world and the industry world. That's an interesting thing. Uh, you mentioned that you're an industrial PhD, yes, PhD student. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how is that working? What, what does, maybe for the, for the people that don't know what, what yeah. it is, and what, what is an industrial PhD student? Can you tell a couple of words about that and your experience? Yeah. Because yeah. now I think, what, what, so you've been an industrial PhD student for... It's my third year. Of, third year. My yeah. third year, yeah. So you have some experience. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, a typical PhD student is sort of employed by the university and gets paid by the university for a number of years. So it's like a project employment, if you like. I'm employed by Westmo, and I get paid by Westmo, and it's an ongoing position. It's not like uh, I have four years. Uh, when I'm done, I will just continue being employed by Westmo if, you know, no one screws up in, in a bad way. Mm. So I'm actually employed as a test lead at Westmo, and this uh, years that I'm doing my PhD is, is part of my role as a test lead mm. at Westmo. And, and is, so you, you, you got to know also PhD students here uh, at the university, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Melodon University, yeah. that are not industrial. Uh, exactly. PhD students. Is it? Do you feel that there is a difference, like in the there research they do oh, yeah. and how you do it, yeah. and what are the advantages, disadvantages you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, as an industrial doctoral student, you sort of have to think about the research being valuable to the company, mm. and uh, it's like you have a, a scale from uh, only relevant for the company. Mm. On one hand, and on the other hand, you have research that is you know, relevant for everyone, but not necessarily the company in the short term. Mm. So you are somewhere, everyone, even, even uh, typical PhD students at the university, they are somewhere along on mm. this scale. Uh, I just have to think about not drifting too far away from what is valuable to Westmo in a reasonably <laughs> short time. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to do that, but sometimes, you know, I wander off. So I, I wrote an ethics paper now recently that I submitted. And you can think of ethics as not necessarily being very important to the company, uh, but there are some connections to the company. So, so the, the ethics part is based on how you handle people working at a company when you do research, when you do interviews. Can you tell me more about this? But I guess this is, I know we're drifting away, but I, yeah. I guess, is it like, so is, So it's about ethics while when you're conducting yeah. interview studies? Yeah, so uh, for the listeners, let's get some background. Yeah. So when I started uh, as a PhD student in 2017, I said to my supervisors that the first first thing I want to do is an interview study where I talk to people about how they uh, interpret uh, test results and make them actionable. And uh, this 
<laughs> became a pretty big thing. And you were part of these uh, interviews that we did. Mm. And so we were five researchers working with this. Mm. So we made interviews, we transcribed them. And uh, earlier this year, 2019, it finally got accepted by IEEE Access. Oh, so the paper good. is out now. So that was really good. I opened a bottle of bubblies for that. Mm. Uh, but during this interview study, I always sort of wondered, how should we do uh, these interviews? What should we do with the data? How should we anonymize transcripts? Mm. How long should we keep the MP3 files? And um, um, part of my role as a PhD student is to take courses like any other PhD student. And when I took a course in ethics, I really you know, fell into the rabbit hole mm. in, in this. And I read a whole uh, lot of papers and uh, also these medical guidelines like uh, the Nuremberg Protocol and, and so on. And uh, I learned a lot on, on how to work with interview data and it, mm. it became a paper that is in submission. Let's hope, oh, it's Let's hope it gets accepted. Okay. Yeah. I guess the, the, the important part is also what was the role of the, of the, I mean, the companies that are involved in these studies. Yeah. They have some expectations. On, the, on how you handle the data. That's is that something that you cover? A bit. A bit. No, okay. Not very much. Yeah. But I guess that's something so, so that you always think about. Yeah, I, I think... Not uh, only from Westermost part, but also from... Yeah, if you're doing interview, uh, an interview study at a company, you obviously want to give feedback to the companies. Mm. Uh, and I, my personal opinion is that you can't just give them a copy of the paper. Yeah. Um, these academic papers, the readers are typically other academics. So I think you need to disseminate the knowledge in some other way. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for this particular interview study, we're trying to... We have recorded a video presentation where I present the paper and I try to summarize it. And uh, I hope also that we could either go back to the companies and hold a presentation or to invite them here. Mm. To to also make have, have them some of them meet each other because they have uh, plenty of valuable experiences that mm. I think they should share. Oh yeah, but this dissemination is uh, um, I, I write a little about it in in the ethics paper, but this is a, a very for me personally it's an important topic, mm. and I think it ties in with this debate on open access, mm. uh, preprints, you name it. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I know that you're quite, uh, quite involved in a way in having your, your, your work of being open access. And uh, I know you're, yeah. you, you have some, some, some thoughts on that that I consider very, very interesting. Can you tell me yeah. more about I yeah. mean, now we're going from one subject to another. But we're that's we're the, jumping, but, we're but jumping. this is still part of ethics yeah. <laughs> in some sense. So, yeah, so I do research that is funded by uh, Westermo. It's also funded by uh, Swedish state money, mm. if you like, through different foundations. And uh, if I write a paper, and the people that funded uh, the research, if they can't read it, I, I find that almost disgusting. Mm. So I should be able to, to uh, tell my colleagues at Westermo, here's the paper I read, and you can find it on the digital library of ACM or IEEE Explore or wherever. I shouldn't have to tell them, oh no, you get this crappy copy that is not official because otherwise you have to pay subscription fees. Uh, and that's, uh, I think that's a very interesting problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, research that is funded should be readable by the people funding it. And in this case, it's Westemo and all of Sweden. Mm. Uh, in a sense. Yeah, and I guess it's also about other researchers accessing your work yeah, in a good way. Yeah. Even if, uh, I guess not all universities have uh, contracts with... Uh, Many universities don't and, have it. Yeah. And, uh, with these publishers. Yeah, and... Um, w w you realize that when you're not... When I'm sitting here at um, MDH, and I um, go into... I search on web search engine for some paper, and I end up with, let's say, IEEE Explore. And you say, you have to register, or you have to pay, or you have to log in, or you have to whatever. Mm. And it's like, you lose 15 minutes every time you, you enter this paywall, because I have to 
log in with this MDH account and so on to read it. And that's life for everyone else, always, except they, they don't have to spend 15 minutes. They have mm. to spend either 30 euros or they can't read it. Mm. So that's, uh, I think that's uh, an interesting problem. And I wasn't aware of this when I started uh, doing research. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good point. And, I, uh, I think and there's a hot debate now on this Plan S, or what's it called? There's some European Union uh, that every paper should be open access. Oh yeah, by 20... Uh, yeah, I can't remember the details. It has been very much criticized. Yeah. And the criticism is really interesting to read. Uh, I'm not that... I, I don't know all the criticism, but... Uh, um, what, what the main... Well, so uh, if you have to choose a paper that has open access, you're sort of uh, stepping on the people's toes when it comes to uh, academic freedom because you can only choose certain uh, venues. Mm -hmm. And also it seems that the prices for open access publishing has increased a lot. I wonder why. So I wonder yeah. why. Yeah, so uh, yeah. it's not a solved problem. Uh, yeah. Open access will work for a lot of things, but mm. maybe not for everything. Mm. Let, let's let's change a, a bit the subject. Yeah, can, of course. Can you tell me uh, a little bit of what you do in your daily life at Vestemo? How is your, you know, even a yeah. daily routine? Yeah. Because you said you're I, a test uh, lead. Yes, I'm employed as a test lead, correct. Uh, so these last couple of years when I've been a PhD student, uh, industrial PhD student, I try to divide my time between... Um, Westmo only work, uh, mm. academic only work, and then this wonderful mix in the middle. <laughs> and an, ex an example of academic only work would be when I'm taking courses that are not really... Mm. It has no clear link to what we do at Westmo. Ethics could be one example of, of mm. this. Uh, an example of uh, sort of Westmo only work would be... Uh, when something is broken in the testing, in the test framework, or someone can't find uh, whatever it is we did to this important customer in 2014. Mm -hmm. But I was there so I can help them find it. Um, and these two, the, the academic only and the Western only, they are not <clears throat> necessarily connected to this overlap that I want to maximize in the middle, where we have value both from an academic perspective and a Western perspective. Mm -hmm. So, so the goal is to have 80% of my time mm. in this overlap area where it's valuable both to Westmo and both from an academic perspective. But you, you see yourself as a, I guess, mainly as a, 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 as a testing practitioner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how, how uh, do well, you... Well, <laughs> practitioner, that depends. Testing, tester. Define your... Both <laughs> practitioner and researcher. Okay, so it's both, of course. Yeah. But how, how, how did you get interested in testing, in software testing? Great for system testing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So now we go back in time to when I um, when I first started working. So um, my first job was as a software developer. This is more than ten years ago. Mm. And um, somewhere along here, uh, I um, encountered testing of the programs you do. You know, when you're at university and you do programming. That's like 1% of software engineering. You write a program, it seems to work, and then you finish the assignment, and then you're done. Mm. But then you get out in the real world, and you have to deliver quality somehow. And how do you measure quality? Well, you do testing, and then you hope it's, it's uh, good. And I, I fell across this quote by, uh, I can't remember who it was, and he, he said, testing is the only way to prove to the customer that you, you're not uh, releasing crap. Mm. And uh, so I found that very interesting, and I got interested into this uh, unit testing, uh, test automation, still on a very low level. And then some years later, I was a consultant, and I was at um, one of the vehicle companies here in the area. And... Um, they were very mature when it comes to testing, uh, rather in the mentality. So uh, they didn't have this, you know, developers doing testing with their left hand. Mm. They had a testing team and test organization. And uh, for them, testing is a career path. You know, it's not 
some people, maybe developers mostly, think that testing is something you do when you 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 fail as a developer. <laughs> but it's I don't see it as that. Uh, there are two different mindsets and skill sets. And uh, so I, I came across this mentality that you know testing is a career path. It's something really nice. Um, I also was exposed to these uh, ISTQB certifications. Oh, the, this uh, industry certification in testers. Mm. Do, so, do you have? Yeah, I actually have uh, three of them. Wow. So uh, this is something that's really good if you're a consultant mm. because then you can tell the customer that, okay, so I've been working with testing and I'm mm. certified. Um, Would you recommend uh, to uh, testing practitioners or even students absolutely working in I, software testing research to take these courses? I, I think it's a really good thing. Um, I learned very much from studying for these uh, certifications. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things is this mentality that, you know, testing is a career path. Mm -hmm. And uh, learning vocabulary, um, learning that, okay, equivalence class partitioning, there are, you know, all these different strategies that you can apply to testing. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, through uh, taking these uh, certifications, mm. I met the wife of Christian Wiklund, who was an industrial PhD student here at MDH it's some years before me. From Ericsson. Yeah. From Ericsson, yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden I met him uh, through his wife, and we started discussing research. And then I met people here at the Software Testing Lab. Mm. So, so that's uh, sort of the... That's how you detour went I took into uh, software testing research. Software testing research, exactly. Uh, yeah. And um, well, <clears throat> if you're a software test, I mean, there are many definitions of software testing, but I guess one of the definitions that maybe we could agree on is that you're trying to find bugs, or a part of a definition. Yeah, you're trying to find bugs. That's a very good question. I have on my desk yes. at Westmo uh, the test. I think policy, or, or if it's strategy. It's a very short document, and it lists, I think, five purposes mm. of software testing. I should have brought it now, mm. um, but... Just to remember what it's... Just to remember exactly, but be, yeah. uh, because I'm going to miss out on things now. Yeah. So one of the things is to uh, show that we are fulfilling requirements. Mm. One of them is to get feedback. And feedback could be it's working or it has bugs. Mm. It depends on what, what you're after or where in the development process you are. Um, and of course, maybe find problems as well, find bugs. So I think uh, show that you are fulfilling something, maybe you have requirements coverage or whatever, getting feedback and finding problems. I don't know, there are some more and I'm not sure about what order they yeah. are in. One of the things is to find bugs, but that's not. Yeah. It, and it's it, not might, the main. it might not even be the most important one. It might. It be could not be, be, but I'm, I'm not but sure. But I think it's the most interesting one, for at least for me. Sometimes, then I, why yeah. I wanted to get to that yeah. point was that uh, every tester has some favorite bugs. What's your favorite yeah. bug? Good question. So I actually have a favorite bug, and uh, again, this is I think more than ten years ago. Mm. So I was. Uh, doing manual testing at a vehicle uh, and um, I was involved in the audio system for this vehicle. So, you know, the driver can push a button and speak to the passengers and uh, when you're uh, passing stops, an automatic voice would say, this is the station, blah, 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 the next station is blah, blah, blah. So it's, you have this kind of very sophisticated audio system. And when I was doing manual testing, so manual testing then was you follow a script you push the button and you read the test specification. It was actually very boring, very repetitive. You push the button, you should expect this. Check. You push another button and you should expect this. Check. Speak in the microphone. Blah, blah, blah. Voice is heard in the loudspeakers. So it was very repetitive, very boring and very, very structured. But as I was doing this, you know, I was pushing the button that the, the driver should push to speak to the passengers. And I could hear a relay toggle behind me. So I pushed the button, and I would hear, and I released the button, and I would hear, 
And I, if I did this a few times, I noticed where every time I pushed the button, I would hear, you know, it would stack up these uh, relay toggles. And I said to myself, <laughs> I can break this. I can push faster than the relay can toggle. And I did that. And I could hear, and it had a, a maximum speed. And then all of a sudden it crashed. So the software crashed and it would, uh, and it's very funny, it's very interesting to listen to a broken audio system <laughs> because it would spew out this broken uh, next station is messages. Um, so the underlying problem here was that uh, the software would accept, it would detect these button presses mm. and it would queue a message in some queue. And this queue had a fixed size. So uh, the queue would be, you know, open the channel, close the channel, open the channel, close the channel. And then it would be full and then it would uh, break some memory somewhere else. Because it would write in a place it shouldn't be able to write. Mm. <clears throat> and I think uh, the fix was, so if when you're adding a message to this queue, if uh, this message would cancel another message in the queue, they would both disappear. Mm. Which makes a lot of sense. Um, and this is something you wouldn't be able to find this uh, by following the test script. So this is another type of testing. Yeah. Um, some people would say it's exploratory testing, mm. and um, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, may, maybe I would use that term as well. Mm. And uh, this, to me... What are the other it, terms? I don't know. No, they have. Uh, I, I think yeah. I would call it exploratory testing. Yeah, in general. Some people don't like the term exploratory testing because it implies that you know the tester sees uh, him or herself as this artist, uh, and you know testing is so beautiful. Mm. Uh, you can't define it, but I know that I'm doing the good thing because I'm listening to my intuition. Mm. And uh, this type of fluffy attitude can sometimes be, you know, you don't like that when you want to be proved quality. Um, but on the other hand, I think I think you need both. I think you need both uh, this repetitive type of testing, but you should automate it. You should have it manual. So you should have this uh, repetitive testing that can rapidly show that okay, I haven't broken something. This would be regression testing, and you know having creative and destructive people playing around with the system to see what would happen. Yeah, I think we're 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 diving in, 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 in into exploratory testing. We said regression testing. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. yeah there okay. are a lot of a lot of things to explore yeah. there. But uh, talking about exploratory testing, so you you have years of experience, I guess, with exploratory testing, uh, using exploratory testing or some type of what some yeah, yeah. people would call. I, I would say manual testing, and some manual. of it was exploratory. Yeah, of course, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, um, do you find it useful in, in, in finding some type of bugs that cannot be found with scripted testing? And what are those? Mm -hmm. Or is it just the, the notion that you have the, or yeah. the liberty so, to, um, to explore <laughs> the system in different ways without being uh, mm -hmm. challenged? I know that there is there's this kind of like a lot of theory behind, well, not a lot yeah, of theory, yeah, behind the session-based testing. Um, and I think uh, I'm, I'm glad you we... said it. I'm glad you said uh, this session-based exploratory testing. Yeah. So uh, we actually tried that at Westmo, uh, and this was uh, when I was a test lead back then, uh, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, so we would make a list, sort of, of the risky things in the release. And maybe it could be, you know, this new protocol hasn't really been tested on this new hardware because the hardware wasn't ready when we developed the software. Mm. So that could be one of the risks. And we would take a paper and just write the name of the hardware and the name of the protocol. And I would ask my colleagues, okay, so think about what could go wrong. Mm. And, uh, or how you could test that, or how you could eliminate uh, this risk. And they would... Uh, write down different steps. Maybe there was a, a test specification that you could follow. Mm -hmm. Then they would sort of add that to this um, small piece of paper that we had. And then they would do the testing. And then they would come over and say, okay, so I tested this on this and that hardware. I found bugs uh, or I didn't find bugs or I didn't have time to test everything. Mm -hmm. And we did that for a number of releases. And uh, it, it actually worked pretty okay. Um, 
One of the problems with exploratory testing is that it's hard to keep track of what has been tested. But by having, uh, I think I had a header on, on the paper where you would fill in the hardware you used and uh, different, uh, in our case, communication protocols or features that you would explore. And then I would say, okay, so we have tested this hardware, you know, 40 hours, but this other hardware has hardly been tested. Mm. So we should uh, ramp up the testing on that one. Everyone who is testing something new would pick this hardware. And then someone would say, oh, no, but we don't have that hardware. We only have the prototypes. And then I would go bang uh, the door, uh, you know, on the project uh, manager and say, we need more hardware to do right. the testing. So you add, add this metadata or like information. Yeah, exactly. That in, in order for others to know what you, you have tested. Exactly. So it's to, a, a bit... To, to keep it... Uh, so to make I, it more scripted. Yeah, maybe. The session but, at but, least. But uh, to, to record, <laughs> record data yeah. on... So you need to record done. the data, what, yeah. what happens. And to, like... And I think that's that's quite important. I, I heard of uh, companies actually using this replay. So you're basically doing the exploratory th yeah. testing, and then yeah. you you record whatever happened, and you can you can you can uh, you can. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I know that some, some years ago, executed. some years ago, probably still, uh, Microsoft in this Visual Studio suite. You know, it's a mega suite. They had some kind of test add-on where you could, if you develop in .NET or whatever, or a web page or something you could run this program inside Visual Studio and you would click around and it would do exactly what you're saying. It would record these steps. Mm. And then you could uh, create an automatic, automated test mm. from this recording. So that, yeah. that's not something we do. It's not something no. I've tried professionally. Mm. I've only been playing around with that. But, but mm. that could be extremely valuable, of course. Mm. But these, these test cases can be fragile. Uh, depending on how you click around, uh, you know, if you change the ID of a button, you rename the text of the button, the test case might break. So the negative side is that these test cases, they seem to be very fragile. Mm. So I wonder if you could tell, tell me about, um, or give me an overview of the problems, the type of problems that you research, your research is trying to solve. Mm, yeah. Uh, going on the research side, not yeah. Now let's go on the research side. Uh, so, when I started out um, being interested in research, uh, I wanted to solve for us at Westmo uh, regression test selection. So, so we had too many test cases and too little time. So we implemented something to solve this. Too many test cases. <laughs> yeah, we didn't that we have time. To we we had too many test cases. We wanted to execute every night. Mm. So when we came to work in the morning, the nightly testing hadn't finished. So we needed to make select a subset of all the available test cases. So we implemented something that seemed to work pretty well, and we did an evaluation. And about this time, I I got into research mm. and. Uh, so what was your observation um, from from when you get to research? I guess you went to see what what, what are the what, yeah. what what's happening in research that you don't know of. I'm losing track here a bit. <laughs> you you asked me uh, about my research. So uh, yeah, yeah. So you're asking about yeah, regression test selection. Regression test selection is one of the problems we had a go at, um, and and why is this interesting to us? Well, we're doing test automation of networked embedded systems. So we have uh, these devices in network topologies and we're putting it in a room together with a whole bunch of other test systems. And this is the level at which we're doing testing. Mm. And one of the challenges here is that testing is slow when you have real hardware. You know, testing can be slow otherwise as well, but, but for us it's slow when, when we do testing on the real hardware. Mm. So we stumbled upon the regression test selection problem. And we wrote a paper on, on that, on um, automated test selection on a on the system level. <clears throat> Another problem that comes when you're doing testing on, on real hardware is to select the hardware. So you have a test case and you want to run it on as many test systems as possible because you want to increase the hardware coverage. And uh, so, so that's a, a second of the papers um, I've written uh, on how to select 
the hardware that goes into the test case. Uh, and also trying to get the test case to move around over the test system, if you like, mm -hmm. to increase the hardware coverage. So if you have a test case that only requires two devices, and the test system has 20, mm. you should try to pick different ones to increase the hardware coverage mm. over time. Um, so those are two challenges that we have, you know, test selection and hardware selection. Another type of problem is understanding what has been tested and uh, what you should do if you're a developer. And, and this is the big interview study that we uh, recently finished. And, and the challenge here to, to us as a company uh, is, you know, we're doing something with the software. The software flows through some uh, continuous integration, FTP server. It end, ends up uh, on a test system. Some test cases are select, selected and executed. The results are stored in a database. And, you know, one day later or a few hours later, I want to look at the results and say, okay, this is good enough or this is not good enough. Um, so we call this information flow in software testing. Uh, and that is not only an engineering challenge, that's also a research challenge. And it's not only a challenge at Westermo, it's a challenge at these uh, companies where we did the interview. They all had this challenge in some sense. Mm. So, so how do we summarize that? How do we summarize uh, my research in a, in a good way? I don't really well, know. It's, it's, uh, maybe the umbrella is, uh, you know, challenges you get when you do system level test automation of embedded systems. So why, can you tell me why is, well, I, I know in a way, but I think it's, it, it will be good to hear from you. Why do you think it's different, and what's the, what's the difference from do, testing uh, with custom hardware, uh, testing embedded systems, uh, compared to testing without it, testing web applications? or Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, um, that's a good question. Because I think that so, relates, so, in a way, yeah, to, to yeah, your Absolutely. I think um, a lot of people, when they first learn about programming, uh, they write a computer program from scratch. Mm. It has a thousand lines of code. Mm. And testing here is sort of trivial. Mm. It's uh, maybe one source code file, maybe one test case. It's one person involved. You're running it on one computer, and the feedback loop is one millisecond. So it's trivial to understand uh, the testing. It's trivial to get the results, and the feedback loop is very, very fast. Uh, if you have a web server, uh, maybe things are a bit slower because you need to maybe ask a database about, you know, show me whatever is in the shopping cart, mm. uh, and you need to render. Depending on how you're testing it, maybe you need to render something in a web browser. Or you could just uh, test the API that sort of gives uh, the web page whatever it wants. Mm -hmm. So if you're making a, populating a table based on some JSON object, that JSON object could be tested without the JavaScript, for example. Mm -hmm. But still, that would be slower than your unit testing. Uh, and if you're running a web server, you could still instrument the code very much. You could say, okay, show me the coverage after these test cases. Mm. And you'd see, okay, aha, so this class is not very much tested compared to these other classes, so I should focus on, on testing over here. And for us at Westermo, when we're doing um, testing, we have um, an operating system run based on Linux running in an embedded device. And this is, embedded device is sort of skinny, if you like. We don't have uh, gigabytes of memory uh, and we don't have terabytes of disk to store things on so when we're doing testing we cannot instrument the code we can't compile in debug mode mm. at least not in, in the typical case um, so we don't know <laughs> we don't know uh, about code coverage for example when we're doing testing mm. we have to look at coverage uh, in some other way mm. I hope I answered your yeah, question. Yeah, I think that, 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 that in, in a way, I think it, you, you did. Um, I should add, so more, I should add uh, one more thing, yeah, and that's um, that when you're testing an embedded device, mm -hmm. um, I think um, you, you need all of these uh, peripheral hardware. You need to uh, send traffic to it. Um, 
And I think typically you would need some third-party equipment. Maybe yeah. you built it yourself, but if you're um, clicking in a web page, you mm. could fake that, I think, pretty easily. Mm. But if you're sending you know, a network storm uh, to an embedded device, you need to create more data than the embedded device can handle, which, mm. is, which can be hard in our case. Yeah, that's a good point. So this peripheral yeah. hardware... I guess it, it, it's interesting that you 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 meant I mean you mentioned that you're doing research on test selection, um, uh, how you map test cases to different hardware configurations, yeah, um, and how you visualize the, these results, yeah, and how the communication in an organization in yeah. testing works. So that's quite a, quite a, quite a large subject, and you I guess yeah. you're yeah. targeting also one of the many many. Many questions. Some of them are very well defined, like the selection part is, yeah. from a scientific point of view, that's a well-defined problems, but yeah. it, I guess is lacking. Um, when uh, we did the study, I, I think I said it had been it has been researched for forty years. Forty years, yeah. yeah. But very little on system level when we did it. Yeah. So that that mo most of the papers were at unit level. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th was this. Uh, your feeling also for the other studies you, 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 you the, did? The mapper, where we try to map hardware, yeah. um, I found one other paper mm. uh, that had uh, investigated something similar, and it was from the automotive industry, and it was sort of, here's a problem we want to work with. Mm. So they didn't, didn't really have... Um, something that they had tried out. Mm. So I think that... Um, but I could be missing things here, mm. of course. Yeah, of uh, course. But, but uh, from when we wrote the paper, we were sort of, sort of uh, oh, we're doing something really new and fancy here. Mm. Um, and maybe we were, actually. Mm. So when, when you say we, I just want to say, is it... Um, yeah, so for, those, for two, those, two, is those two papers on, on, on test selection and on the hardware selection, it was me and my supervisors, Daniel Sundmark and Wasif Afsal, and also the gurus that we have, are fortunate enough to have here at, at MDH, uh, Tom Ostrand and Elaine Wajuker. Mm. So we were uh, five authors on, on uh, both of these uh, papers. That's amazing. And we were five authors on this interview study yeah. as well. I know that. You know that, yeah. So <laughs> it was, I was involved in uh, let's, that. Let's mention that. Yeah. So it was yeah. me, it was uh, Edward Polinuyu, that's you. Yeah. Uh, my supervisors, uh, Wasif Afsal and Daniel Sundmark, and also uh, Robert Felt uh, from, from Chalmers. We, from Chalmers. we yeah. sort of uh, recruited him because we wanted, I don't know, a method guru or something. Yeah, well, he's a method guru. And, uh, and, and that and was more, a, much more than that. That was really good. Uh, if he's listening, that, that's why I'm saying listening. that. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or we can trash talk him yeah. afterwards. But I, I'm really interested in that the the part about visualization. So, yeah. first of all, why do you want to do research in visualization of test results? And then, mm -hmm. secondly, mm -hmm. uh, what what did you discover? And um, what are the the ongoing challenges in this? Because this is not an area of research that has been, I don't know, popular. I would say in the last couple of years. It, I think there is a lot of research on okay. it. Um, maybe not a lot. On visualization in general? I, I, data visualization, yeah. there's a lot. Um, test results, uh, visualization, there is some. Mm. Um, so I have, I, I made a very short and informal paper on uh, visualizing test results with heat maps. It hasn't been peer-reviewed, but, but it's still sort of interesting. Uh, and, and I found, I think, four or five papers where they do this. Mm. Um, and we also have a paper on uh, making decisions and visualizing test results. And this was at, published at ESEM 2018 for the industry track. So ESM is a conference, yeah. Yeah, it's a empirical software engineering and measurements. Yeah. Um, so why do we want to visualize? Mm. Um, that's a really good question. So, um, again, if we go back to the very easy case where you're writing a thousand lines of code on your desktop computer and you have ten test cases. 
uh, and, and you are the only tester and you only test it on your computer. Uh, and the feedback is very fast. Here, understanding the results is trivial. Uh, but uh, what we are doing at Westmo is, um, for, first of all, we, we have hundreds of uh, test cases. Uh, testing goes typically overnight. That's the automatic testing. You can test manually if you like, but there's automatic testing overnight. We have, I don't know how many developers, dozens, and many of them work in different code branches. Because if, um, if a developer team A is implementing one feature, they do it in one code branch. It's like their own sandbox. They can destroy that sandbox if they like, but it, when, when the feature is ready, it goes into the master track, and then it should have a high quality. Right. So we have a number of these code branches. I don't know, a dozen at least. Uh, and then also physical and virtual test systems. So uh, when you come to work in the morning and you want to see, did my code change from yesterday break anything, uh, that's, that's non-trivial to answer. You go into this, right now it's a web-based portal and it will probably still be, you go into your code branch and you look, the default is you look at the list of test cases that failed. And if you see that the test case you thought you might have broke, uh, broken, if it's not in the list of failures, then you could be happy but it could also be the case that this test case was never executed mm. because of the test selection process. Mm. And if it failed, um, it, it could be because you were on a different type of hardware that you didn't expect. Uh, and even if it failed for a good reason, you would have to uh, click around and read log files. Um, and, and it can be really tricky to understand what caused this failure. Mm. And even if, you know, in the best of worlds, uh, your software is sort of broken and you would easily understand, ah, I need to fix this. But it could be that the test case is broken or that the hardware had another timing than you thought or that the test environment didn't generate the traffic with the timing you thought it would. Mm. So the causal, yeah. yeah. And it could be, you know, other people have interesting problems with leap year. You know, it was December, um, February 29th, so something broke. Oh, shit, we didn't test that. Uh, time zones, you know, those sorts of killer things that happen to other people happen to us every day because we have so diverse uh, mm. um, hardware and uh, uh, code branches and so on. Mm. And when you visualize the data for a human being, yeah. is it, I guess it, it, it really, you would like to show things in a different way, in yeah. a certain way that yeah. they could easily understand and immediately take action. Yeah. What, what, what do you say about that? Um, what, we, do you do research on, on what type of visualizations you want to show, mm. what information you need to show, and also, I don't know, it could be, I guess they're designed like, oh, what colors to use and yeah. what to not use. And so you're asking a few of my favorite questions here. Okay. <laughs> so let's uh, talk about the first one, the colors. So a lot of people use red for fail and green for pass. But some like 5-7% of all men are colorblind. So they can't trivially see the difference between red and green. I'm one of those. So when I'm picking strawberries, for example, mm. I don't see the strawberries. I, I don't see the red. I, don't, I can't see that they're red. You look so I, I have to put my head in the bush and then I can see, okay, aha, here's something round. You need to look at the shape. I need to look at the shapes. And maybe the yeah. <laughs> patterns Dots and so on. Yeah. So um, when it comes to colors, I, I'm one again one of these uh, corner cases. So we use blue and red. Mm. And we also have different shapes. So pass is a small blue circle, red is a big red circle. And then we have other patterns and uh, shapes for other types of verdicts. Mm. So that's the color. And, um, I, I could also mention that we, we call it heat map uh, when we visualize it. So, so for us, um, it's, a, it's actually a scatter, a scatter plot. Mm. So on the x-axis you have time, on the y-axis you have different test systems, and each dot is a verdict. 
past or fail or something pass else. or fail or something else. Mm. And then you can see if it's a red line, you would know that this test case has consistently failed on this test system. If it's a little red here and there, like a strawberry bush, <laughs> then uh, you know it could be a flaky test. That's what people typically call a flaky test. Mm. Uh, if there are red uh, columns, if you like, then uh, you know this particular test case uh, failed on every test system this mm. particular night. So uh, we use these heat maps a lot. Is it the best way to visualize test results? Uh, no, it's one way to do it. You need others as well. Mm. I guess you, you, you plan to investigate others also. I, uh, yeah, so I have, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, actively working, in, as I said before the interview, I'm, I'm, I'm working in, in two different uh, things. Uh, mm. One of them is getting the test results exploration to scale better. When we implemented many of these things that we have, we had two code branches, four test systems, and, I don't know, 200 test cases. So now we have a dozen code branches, more than 20 test systems, and, and several hundreds more of test cases. Mm. So um, the complexity has sort of given us... I mean, it's a combinatorial pain. explosion. Yeah, it's a combinatorial explosion, and yeah. it doesn't scale what we have right now. Mm. So, so that's, you, that's you one of the things I... You need some 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 more visualization. There. Yeah, um, I, I I saw that you have a background in mathematics and bioinformatics. Yeah. So yes. how did you get uh, into that? And also, you have mm -hmm. a thesis on text uh, text mining to identify gene networks. Yeah. That's yeah. not software testing. <laughs> how did you get software testing? How did you get into that? So uh, first of all. My mom is a teacher in uh, mathematics and chemistry and physics. So when I was in my teens, you know, uh, mathematics was really easy for me. Mm. And um, when I started at the university, I was really fascinated by, uh, by genes. And so, so you have this, you know, it's a four different types. <laughs> you don't have zeros and ones. So you have zero, one, two, three. Uh, in the genes, and they're encoded to a protein. So you have sequential data in the DNA that's transformed into sequential data into a protein. And this protein is built li like, a, like a necklace, a pearl mm. necklace, one by one. And then it folds to, to create a shape. And this, whatever it is, you're folding is insulin or, or uh, an active ingredient in, in uh, soap or whatever. <coughs> And I found that to be so fascinating. So I, I started, that's why I started with the biotech. But as I was doing this uh, at the university, I realized that I have spare time, if you like. I have slots in the, in, the, in the schedule. So I started taking extra mathematics courses. And then all of a sudden I had written a thesis in mathematics. And my supervisor said, Oh, why don't you add a chapter on this and a chapter on that? And then this, this would be a master's. And I did. But I wasn't qualified <laughs> to do a master's because I hadn't read enough mathematics. So you, you did a bachelor thesis. That was the initial. That was that the was initial a, goal in at, mathematics. At, at which university? Linköping Lin University. And then... Uh, it grew into a master's into in, master. in mathematics. And uh, then I realized I could finish my, my biotech. Mm. And I... Uh, got niched into bioinformatics. And typically, bioinformatics is biological information in databases. But my uh, supervisors uh, down in Linköping, they were uh, fascinated by text mining. And uh, I downloaded uh, a whole, like millions of abstracts from uh, PubMed. It's like a big database of medical uh, papers, and you could download just the abstract. And I parsed uh, these abstracts, and if I found the gene name, um, or rather if I find more than one gene name, I would say, oh, these two are connected in a network. And if you do that for millions of papers, you build a very big network of genes. Mm. And uh, then I had a cutoff, you know, it has to occur more than five times, otherwise it's below the, the noise uh, threshold. Mm. 
And uh, yeah, so that's how I, I built a genetic network with, with text mining. Did you ever thought about uh, staying in bioinformatics? Or yeah, at that time I wanted to do a PhD in biotech. Okay. Um, but I didn't uh, for a number of different reasons. Mm. And then I started working with uh, software development. And, uh, but I sort of always wanted to do this uh, PhD. You never know. And, and there is still time. And then more than 10 years later, I started doing it. So, do a yeah. PhD in, 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 in another subject. In another subject. Yeah. So what, what do you do in your free time? When you're not working yeah. in software testing, you must well, do I'm something not, else, yeah? So I, have, I have two kids and a wife, and uh, obviously family life takes a lot of time. I, I, um, my, my daughter does soccer, and I try to go swimming with my son. But when I get to choose freely, I... Um, I want to be outside in the woods and uh, you know, do hiking. So that's my favorite activity. There are two, yeah, I know many All good the, spots. Okay. I know many good spots, absolutely. Yeah. But there are two main object, objectives with, with being uh, out hiking. One of them is uh, you do some physical exercise. Mm. It's, I, I walk, I'm not one of these guys that run. I want to have a low intensity but but long duration. <laughs> so I get to walk and also I get to uh, be alone often and finish thoughts. So often you have all these thoughts bubbling around and you can't get rid of them. Mm. But if you're alone in the woods, you get to finish them and then you can sort of garbage collect them. So you get rid of them. So you That's have an interesting method. Yeah, that, at least that's but how. But you it, need to walk for a long time, I guess, to yeah. get to finish. For a few thoughts. hours, at least, yeah. <laughs> at least a few hours. Okay. That's how it works for me, anyway. Yeah. And um, I think when you're surrounded by green trees, I think it's really good. That's mentally as well. Yeah. So mm. if now, if you would um, try to recommend some books to yeah. to to our listeners. Or the books that influenced you the most or yeah. you would like to, to share with us? I, I was sort of... I, I had listened to the other interviews yeah. and I, I knew this question was coming. Uh, so I thought about that. And uh, one of the books that influenced me much is uh, 1984 by George Orwell. Mm. Or his real name isn't George Orwell. No, it's a pseudonym. I can't remember the original name. So I was a, a sort of a neurotic teenager. <laughs> and uh, I sometimes had this paranoid nightmare... Uh, ideas that people could read minds and but I couldn't and um, about <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> yeah, thought, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, what if, I can't prove that they can't read my mind <laughs> and then I read 1984 and it has it's really paranoid and dystopian and uh, uh, it really I think it really influenced me a lot and, and it opened the door to a whole um, category of books that are sort of about the future, but the future is bad. Hmm. And uh, also, I guess 1984 will says a lot about so different type of societies. Oh yeah, and absolutely. things that societies yeah. you don't want to live. Absolutely, <laughs> and uh, this uh, the supervision that is is in 1984 is the state spying on you. Hmm. Uh, which is different from companies spying on you, but now we, <laughs> I guess, in some countries. You could have. We, we have both, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Sweden so much is one of them, but may, maybe, who knows? Yeah. I think a lot of people should read 1984. It's a good uh, yeah, recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as soon as you have a terrorist attack, you're sort of increasing the surveillance. Mm. And uh, they're sort of increasing the surveillance because, oh, we want to find the terrorists. Mm. But um, I'm sort of worrying, worried that it's a, it's a you know, slippery, sloping... Mm. And all of a sudden, we will be supervised more and more. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still neurotic and paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am also, so it's okay. We're in, yeah, a lot of people are, and I think we should be. Yeah. Um, Another yeah. book that influenced me, uh, I I read it when I was sort of learning more and more about software testing. I was doing these ISTQB certifications, and it's a book. Uh, the author is Rex Black. And uh, this particular one is Advanced Software Testing Volume 2, uh, which is a guide to this uh, ISTQB certification for test manager. And uh, it's a pretty, for, for my standards back then, it's a thick book. Uh, and uh, 
it goes into, let's say, the project management aspect of being a test manager. It goes into risk-based testing, which I found incredibly interesting. Uh, and uh, I, I still think that risk-based testing is one of the best strategies that you could have. I'm intrigued. Oh, well, I know. Okay. <laughs> so I, I want to reread the, the the book. Yeah. Um, but from an academic perspective, yeah. I think I'm not sure people like Rex Black in academia, but I think they should, or at least they should relate to him, or, or sort of. How should I put it? He he's above all a practitioner, I think, and uh, he has a lot of experience. I'm not sure he has scientific methods and mm. so on, but. Um, I was very much inspired by by this book, and also he has a sort of a webcast okay. webinar. Okay. Yeah, or, so he, or he does, podcast. So he, so he does presentations and records them, oh, okay. and he has um, a whole bunch of them, and many of them are really interesting. Mm. Uh, I think the target audience is practitioners, mm. but uh, but this might be interesting for also for researchers. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he ma many maybe it's anecdotal evidence, but you know there's a lot of anecdotes, and maybe yeah. you well, know, maybe enough anecdotes. If data, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there might be that this uh, anecdotes transform in hypotheses that some yeah. people could actually test. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that's a good. And the third book uh, I brought or, or thought of is uh, by an author called Atul Gawande. Mm. Uh, it's called the Checklist Manifesto. Uh, so uh, this is a medical doctor, a surgeon, mm. who is. Uh, recruited by the World Health Organization, WHO, to make a checklist uh, that you should follow before all surgeries. You know, every surgical you know, intervention, you should have a look at this checklist. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty big scope. Uh, and in the book, uh, we sort of follow him when he tries to think about uh, checklists. He goes to the you know, avionics, when, when did they start with checklists and why? Mm. Uh, they go to construction, they go to, you know, chefs in kitchens and so on. Why can checklists be useful and how mm. how can I use them in my life? I guess you uh, use checklists. <laughs> I, I like checklists. <laughs> Not everyone does. Mm. So if you're doing uh, Agile and you, you're doing Kanban, mm. uh, you have a note with your task that you should or feature or whatever, and you move it from, from uh, one column to the next, and then you should have a definition of that. In order to move this note, I should have done bam, bam, bam. That's a checklist for me. Mm. And um, when I started thinking about when we are, should have checklists, so one of the things is a developer is making a code change or implementing something new and, and does a, a commit to the... Uh, source code repository. <coughs> and the typical bug is they forgot to add a file. So, um, and, and if, you, if you miss it, mm. you know, it will be caught in, in uh, continuous integration. But still, it could be a queue to get to the compiler. Maybe you have a dedicated server that's mm. you know, full of people who want to compile. And you lose half an hour because you forgot to add the file. So maybe a system could check, you know, but here's a, a file you haven't really added. This, is, this file is untracked. Mm. That's what Git says. Git tells you these are <laughs> untracked files. So maybe if your mental checklist is I should have a look at this list of untracked files before I do the commit. Maybe mm. you would save a lot of time. And you know there are a million things that, that where a checklist could help mm. you, I think. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. But some people hate checklists because, uh, you know, it destroys my creativity mm. and you cannot uh, in any way reduce whatever I do to a checklist with four bullets. Mm. I guess but in some cases... In some cases that makes sense. Uh, I don't think you should only have a checklist, mm. but if it's good enough for the World Health Organization, maybe it can be good enough <laughs> for, for me. That's a good point. Yeah, so I think we got to the end of the, of the interview. I want to thank you so much for this. For, uh, thank you, for doing it's this. interesting. Uh, and if you would like to, I don't know, pitch something now, where people can find you, is there any any website or just Google your name? That's it. I have a web page, uh, per9000.com. Uh, I'm not very active 
uh, I have a n- very non-interactive uh, web page. Mm. Uh, otherwise, they can find me through my MDH webpage. Okay. Uh, I will link that in the, in yeah, the description. Perfect. 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 Thank you so much. And if you're interested yeah. in, in uh, networked embedded systems okay. for different applications, you know, Westmo is, you know, obviously the number one. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I'm making some spam here at the yeah, end. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Oh, of yeah. course. Not. And so I'm pretty sure the website of Westmo is. Yeah, Westmo.com. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Bert. Thank you, Eddie. Thanks.